Welcome back to the podcast, Unbinding the Bible. This is episode 158, Salt and Light. And on the podcast this week, I want to look at Jesus' words from Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16, where he addresses his disciples as both the salt of the earth as well as the light of the world. And so what I want to do on this episode is take a little time to talk about what those two metaphors mean, what they might have been understood to mean in Jesus's context. And then I'd also like to spend a little time not only explaining how I think they're meant to be applied to the world today, but also some of the ways in which they are not to be applied or have been mistakenly applied um, over the years. And so We'll kind of bounce around a couple places. I wanted to read a few quotes from Lee Camp's book, Scandalous Witness. I had Lee on the podcast a few years ago doing a by-the-book episode, and I'll reference that in the podcast episode itself today. But um, I'm encouraged. Um, some of the things that Sky has written in his creative little book on the Sermon on the Mount, and then I'll just make some of my own observations. So I am excited for this week's episode. Let's just get right into it. To begin this week's episode, allow me just to read Matthew 5, 13 through 16. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now that's the passage that I want to spend a little bit of time talking about and the two metaphors that Jesus uses, the ones being salt as well as light. Um, I think is a, a really good way for us to, to begin. And so let me just go ahead and, and offer sort of a, a little bit of a working definition of what I think um, salt and light actually are. I know there's a lot of thoughts about this. I've researched this different points in my, my life, and I think this makes the best sense of these passages. Um, but I'm pulling this from Sky's book. Uh, again, what if Jesus was serious And here's what Sky says, in the ancient world, salt was a preservative. It slowed or prevented the decay of meat, a necessity in a time before refrigeration. Light, of course, had the same function 2,000 years ago as it does today. By calling us salt and light, Jesus was emphasizing two functions his followers have in the world. Like salt, we have the defensive responsibility to prevent evil to slow or stop the decay of injustice. Like light, we also have the offensive responsibility to spread truth, goodness, and beauty, to advance the qualities of God's kingdom. Now, I think that's really good. Sky talks about both the the defensive approach and the offensive approach, and the defensive approach being to slow the decay and the spread of evil. That's the function of salt. And I know today we think of salt, well, it makes our food taste better. And that that's all, all altogether true. But Sky's point is really well taken. And that is that in the ancient world before refrigeration, if you had meat, it would go bad unless you rubbed salt into it. And it would prevent that process from happening too rapidly. 
And so what Jesus is saying to his disciples, and I think it's important to realize this, he does shift to the second person plural here. He's talking to his disciples. Um, We looked at it in the Beatitudes where I think Jesus was certainly addressing his disciples, but he was reminding them of the kinds of people who are blessed in the kingdom. And so it's important for the disciples to recognize the poor in spirit and the mourners and the meek and the pure in heart. Those are the ones they ought to have their eyes set on because those are the people that God has his eyes set on. And it's a, a major reorientation that needs to take place. And as a result, it's it's actually going to be these kinds of people who are the focus of God's kingdom. And when his disciples realize that, they then will live quite differently from the rest of the world. And as Sky says here, purposefully to advance the qualities of God's kingdom. So it is the kinds of people who who are following Jesus, who elevate those of poor, you know, in spirit status and who um, recognize the mourners and pay special attention to them and pursue ways of peacemaking that mirror Jesus's approach to peacemaking. All, all of these things are what the disciples are to embody as well. And by doing so and, and having their eyes set on those who live this way, they will become salt and light. And we, we, you, you can kind of imagine in your own head a lot of different things about what that means. And I don't know why this keeps surfacing for me, but it does. And, and it, it, it tends to be, I think, a little bit of, a, of an unfortunate set of circumstances that oftentimes in the church, the, the mentality is to kind of look at the culture around us and or outside the church and kind of shake our head and look down or, or look at the world in a sort of disgusted way or in a way that recognizes how futile the, the people are in the world who don't know God and tend to spend our time almost disparagingly viewing the culture around us and how quickly it is deteriorating, if you will. And I feel like Sky's subtitle to his book, um, What If Jesus Was Serious, being a visual guide to the teachings of Jesus we love to ignore, I think here's another place where we love to ignore the teachings of Jesus. Because if Jesus is calling the church, if Jesus is calling his followers, if Jesus is calling those who are in him and members of his kingdom to be the salt of the earth— then I want us to think about it from this perspective. And I'm going to use Sky's words again because they're better than mine. Here's what Sky says. Rather than blaming others for the sad state of affairs and withdrawing from secular society, maybe we ought to ask why we are so eager to withdraw in the first place. Is it a way to preserve our self-righteousness? To escape the responsibility for the world's problems? Rather than blaming non-Christians when things go wrong in society, we ought to start with self-reflection. Where were the Christians? How did we help or hurt the situation? Were we obeying our call to be salt and light? Now, I think Sky has making a really good point. And the point I would like to make in, uh, you know, in, connection with Sky's point is simply when we look at the culture as a whole, I think it is healthier for Christians, for church, you know, attenders or whatever 
to ask, how did we as the Christians help or hurt the situation? How did Christians help or hurt the the issues that we see in our world? And to give you just one example, for instance, to today we have sort of a a lingering mentality that we might call cancel culture. Um, I, I don't know who first coined that term. I don't even know if that's the best term to describe it. But in short, cancel culture is if you don't agree with me or line up with me on XYZ, this, that, and the other thing, then I'm going to basically function as if you don't exist. You know, you are you are dead to me. Your 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 opinions don't matter. Who who are you to critique me any longer? Like you're no longer a part of the society that I'm going to recognize as a society worth listening to. And there are lots of Christians. I know them. I've talked with several of them. They attend my church who over time get a little bit flustered and a little bit fearful that people will cancel us and that there will be no more you know, guidelines in place that would prevent us or that would enable us to continue to worship and have the freedom to express our worship or, or laws are going to be passed that are going to pin us down into a corner. And what, what I oftentimes think about here when, when I look at this situation is I say, okay, what about cancel culture? What about this world that we find ourselves in? And I say, if Jesus is calling us to be the salt of the earth, if he's calling us to be this preservative agent which prevents decay, I would submit to you that arriving at a place in our world where we have this cancel culture is probably um, signs of some decay. Uh, we, we have lost the ability to critically think, and part of critical thinking is to recognize that even if somebody doesn't agree with you 100% of the time or share your views 100%, that doesn't mean that nothing they say or nothing they do is worth paying attention to. Um, today, we've, we, we're slipping. We're, we're missing it when we, when we decide that if a person doesn't agree with us 100%, then they are dead to us. Um, that's a decaying part of society. But I do feel the need to point out that the Christians are not exempt from this. In fact, as far as my own knowledge of history goes, it was sometimes the Christians who were leading this particular cancel culture decline. <clears throat> if you go back years ago, many, many Christians began to boycott Disney as a result of some things they felt Disney was doing that they personally didn't agree with. Now, granted, those Christians might have had a reason not to agree, okay? They, they might have assumed that Disney was pushing a certain agenda that Christians didn't agree with, and so they felt like canceling them, removing them from the eye, not giving them the time of day, was doing something by, you know, of, of being a salt agent pre preserving the decay. But Christians have done this with uh, Starbucks. There was an uproar years ago about Starbucks not putting Merry Christmas on their Christmas cups and people losing their marbles over it instead of just being fine with a completely secular company like Starbucks deciding to write happy holidays on their cups. It wasn't a personal attack on Christians, but Christians rose up in defiance of that and made a big to-do about quit going to Starbucks. They don't honor Jesus at Christmas time. Americans always honor Jesus. And it kind of blurs with this idea that because this company originated in America, and that some people think America has some sort of special tie with Christianity, 
that for Starbucks to rebel against putting Merry Christmas on their mugs, then that must ha- somehow mean that, that Starbucks is rejecting um, the Christian faith. None of those things are true. Um, number one, America doesn't have some special relationship with the Christian faith. Starbucks is not rejecting the Christian faith by writing happy holidays on mugs. But people who get it into their minds that everybody in the world is supposed to line themselves up with the Christians are forgetting one fundamental thing. If the whole world was supposed to line itself up with the Christian way of thinking, there would be no need for salt in the world. The decay that gets people on edge so much is something that Jesus is simply stating is a fact. He is then calling his disciples, his followers, to be the alternative to that decay by the way that they live. Now today, we like it just when certain realities are in existence. Like we like it when Starbucks writes Merry Christmas, or we like it when... Disney promotes a movie that we agree with every moral that's presented in the film. Like, it's not necessarily calling us to do something to embody Jesus's attributes ourselves. Rather, it's us sort of sitting back wishing and hoping that the world would just mirror Jesus's kingdom and that would kind of take the pressure off of us. But Jesus isn't living in, a, in an imaginary world. I mean, he's literally calling disciples who lived under Roman occupation in the first century to be salt and light. And so I want us to apply Jesus's metaphors first to the way his own followers might have applied them. And to be this preserving agent is to recognize many of the destructive things that happen in the Roman empire and what Jesus might in fact be calling his own disciples to embody. But I think why I love Sky's subtitle to his book so much, The Teachings of Jesus We Love to Ignore, is because we forget to be salt and light is to advance the qualities of God's kingdom. Well, the qualities of God's kingdom show up most clearly in a world that desperately needs a kingdom from another world. And that's what Jesus is calling us to. He's calling us to embody the kind of righteousness that is not external only, but it is also deeply internal. And from the internal state of things, the external actions line up. Well, that's not the way our world functions, and that's not even the way that religious people function, as we will see very clearly throughout the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is calling his disciples to be something different. And I personally believe that when he calls us the salt of the earth and we look around and we see decay, well, this isn't, you know, 30 years ago, things were totally different. I'm sorry. I'm just going to put my cards on the table. My first response when I hear that is, what did the Christians do to contribute to that downfall? And what did the Christians not do to embody a kingdom that is not of this world so as to draw other people into a better way of looking at the world. I spend no time, absolutely zero amount of my time, shaking my head in discouragement about the decisions that people make in this world. I spend 0% of my time doing that. Absolutely none. What I do is I ask, how did the Christians negatively contribute to the situation that our culture finds itself in right now. 
And I've found that the, that the ratio of the amount of time I ask that question, how did the church contribute, sets me up to be able to see dysfunction and dysregulation and bad thinking in the church that is number one, one of the reasons why Christians respond so harshly to the culture around them is that they don't realize that they have just been playing right into the same hands. They've been doing the things the exact same way the culture does. It's a strong conviction of mine, as I'm sure you know by now, as you've listened to my podcast, but that the church follows the culture way more than the church is willing to admit. Um, We're embedded in it, and we're, we're embedded in it to the point where we've almost created a little version of religion, which allows us to just be, you know, Um, good capitalist Americans who don't have any idea that Jesus is actually calling us to something far more radical than that. And I I think the, the metaphor for light has some of the same connotations to it. We are to be the light of the world. The world is a, is a dark place. Um, and again, that, that the darkness that resides in the world resides in our hearts as well. And so Paul and, and Jesus and others will invite us to bring things into the light. That's both personally as well as if there are deeds of darkness being done, that we are called to expose those kinds of things, whether they be outside of us or inside of us. But this idea that we have created kind of a version of Christianity that meshes really, really well with being a good American Um, That gets us in a lot of trouble because then we decide to critique somebody who doesn't have the same moral compass that we do and call them un-American, right? Well, it's not as simple as that. And and I do do honestly think that over the last three, four, five decades, maybe more, there's, there's been a strong push to sort of unite what the Christians are called to be and do with what America is called to be and do. And for those Christians living in America, it is becoming increasingly more difficult to recognize that there are actually sharp distinctions made between being a good American and being a good Christian. And it's not people's fault per se, that they don't necessarily know what it is that they're, that they're holding on to. But I just, I just want to read for you one of the reasons why this is becoming harder to swallow. It's har- harder to understand the difference and then to, to not really be able to see how light and salt are, are something very different from what we oftentimes think they are. I'm going to read you just a few paragraphs from Lee Camp's book, Scandalous Witness. Um, it's a little political manifesto for Christians. Um, one of the single best books Um, out there, in my opinion, that really does help us wrestle with true Christian faith and how that meshes or or, um, wrongly has been attempted to be meshed with American political reality. And I had Lee on the podcast. um, I published our conversation December 17th of 2020. It's a by the book episode titled that way, by the book, Scandalous Witness. And you can go back and re-listen to that conversation if you would like. Lee references a few of the things that I'm going to talk about on the podcast today. But what I want to do is I want to read for you um, from his proposition number three, uh, where he says, American hope is a bastard, uh, which is a great, 
great title for a chapter. Um, he's got some punchy little titles in here, but I want you to, I want to help us see some of the water that we swim in. And I want to relate it specifically to Jesus's words, where he says to his disciples, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your father who is in heaven. So Jesus is calling people to be the light of the world. He's calling them to shine light, which I would like to submit to you is when we embody the character or the the qualities of Jesus's kingdom, which the Sermon on the Mount makes up in its entirety. And, but I want to read for you here in, um, from Lee's camp, Lee Camp's book, and he'll quote, um, from President Ronald Reagan. But here's what he says. In 1980, on the eve of his election, U.S. President Ronald Reagan said, quote, I have quoted John Winthrop's words more than once on campaign trial this year, on the campaign trail this year, for I believe that Americans in 1980 are every bit as committed to that vision of a shining city on a hill as were those long ago settlers. Now, again, City on a hill is in quotes in Reagan's quote, and he is in fact quoting from Matthew 5.14, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Reagan goes on, these visitors to that city on the Potomac do not come as white or black, red or yellow. They are not Jews or Christians, conservatives or liberals, or Democrats or Republicans. They are Americans, awed by what has gone before, proud of what for them is still a shining city on a hill. Camp goes on. And in 1989, in his farewell speech, Reagan said, quote, I've spoken of the shining city all my political life, but I don't know if I ever quite communicated when I saw what I saw when I said it. But in my mind, it was a tall, proud city built on rocks stronger than oceans, windswept, God-blessed, and teeming with people of all kinds living in harmony and peace, a city with free ports that hummed with commerce and creativity. And if there had to be city walls, the walls had doors and the doors were open to anyone with the will and the heart to get there. That's how I saw it and see it still. Now, that was Reagan's quote, a quote from him, which Kemp goes on to say as he's about to describe this situation and and a president's use of a city set on a hill to be applied to America. He's saying this is not a partisan discussion. There have been liberals and conservatives, presidents throughout the ages who have spoken the way Reagan spoke, and it's just sort of a a way to kind of get at this issue. But here's what Camp says, and forgive me for this, I'm going to Talk in one one uh, with one hand on my phone, and, and I'm going to be flipping pages with another hand. So it might you might hear some crinkling in the back, but that's okay. Here's what Camp says: Reagan's rhetoric is striking and brilliant, mixing Jesus's description of the kingdom of heaven in the Sermon on the Mount, Paul's description of the baptized community in the book of Galatians, and John's heavenly vision in the book of Revelation. While Reagan's rhetoric is indeed brilliant. We must see it as idolatrous. Compare and contrast the Apostle Paul with President Reagan. For Paul, God entrusted a ministry of reconciliation to the church. The church, rather than grounding its identity in any form of ethnic superiority or nationalism, 
would in fact set aside the various mechanisms of power and hostility attached to particular identities. The church comprised people of every land, tribe, ethnicity, welcoming all. The church then was called to go forth and sow seeds of reconciliation. Hostility and partisanship were to be defeated through love of enemies and doing good to those who do us wrong. Oh, sorry, let me, let me keep going and, and continue. For Paul then, it was the new humanity created in Christ who embodied, quote, neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, there is n- nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus, Galatians 3.28. But for Reagan, it is the odd citizens of the United States who do not come as white or black, red or yellow. They are not Jews or Christians, conservatives or liberals, or Democrats or Republicans. No, transcending all these markers of division, the great communicator contends, is patently not the fact of a unity in Christ. Transcending all these markers of presumed hostility, he claims, is the fact that, quote, they are Americans. He goes on to point out that In the book of Revelation, John draws a sharp contrast between the mechanisms of empire and the means of the church. If you listened to my Revelation series, I spoke about this a lot. Some of you think I spoke about it too much. That's fine. I will probably keep speaking about it as long as I speak because I think it's an important distinction to make. The new humanity of the New Testament is not bounded by artificial geographical boundaries and is not defended by military might. This idea that we are going to become a city on a hill as Americans is something that you and I have to guard ourselves against. And one of the tricks with this is that some will say, well, Reagan was a Christian, so he's going to use Christian language to talk about realities um, that as he sees them, he's the leader of a, of the you know the free world, and he wants to be able to um, communicate that reality. I get it, I actually get it, but America is not a city shining on a hill. It is not something that God has ordained to be a particular way. You will listen to speeches given by presidents where they will talk about the blessings of God and they will talk about the fact that God is now going to bless their weapons over against the weapons of their quote-unquote enemies. And one of the passages we love to ignore, one of the teachings of Jesus we love to ignore is that he calls us to lay down our lives for enemies. Well, that is certainly not something that a nation does, and that is why the church is not bound by geographical nation-state identities. They, They don't have borders to defend. That's not a thing for the church. And when the church gets gets deceived into connecting its identity with the identity of a nation, it becomes very difficult to know when the nation doing nation-like things and using God-like language to support it, it's hard for Christians to decide, is this really something that God is in favor of or is this something that God is not in favor of? And it's shocking to some people. I mean, this is 1980, so it's not forever ago, but goodness, that's over 40 years long, and Reagan's not alone here, but 40 years long where America is spoken this way. America steals some other language from other passages in the Bible, particularly about hope and the hope for the world 
and which we know is ultimately in Jesus, right? It isn't in America. And yet I'd like to read for you just briefly another little section, um, Proposition 5 in Lee Camp's book, um, which he titles, The United States is Not the Hope of the World. And um, here's here's what he says. In the first inaugural address of 1801, Thomas Jefferson referred to the United States as, quote, the world's best hope. Abraham Lincoln, in his 1862 report on the State of the Union, called the preservation of the Union of the United States through the Civil War, quote, the last best hope on earth. Woodrow Wilson would see the United States' entry into World War I as vitally important for the unfolding of human history and in naive, idealistic anticipation of the biblical hope, insisted that the war would be the, quote, war to end all wars. More pointedly, following the war, Wilson, repeat, Wilson repeatedly said America would, quote, save the world. Here's Woodrow Wilson's quote itself. I have lived to see a day in which, after saturating myself most of my life in the history and traditions of America, I seem suddenly to see the culmination of American hope in history. All the orators seeing their dreams realized, if their spirits are looking on. All the men who spoke the noblest sentiments of America heartened with the sight of a great nation responding to and acting upon those dreams and saying, quote, at last, the world knows America as the savior of the world, end quote. Lee Camp goes on. And in his 2019 State of the Union address, President Donald Trump insisted, quote, we must keep America first in our hearts. We must keep freedom alive in our souls. And we must always keep faith in America's destiny. That one nation under God must be the hope and the promise and the light and the glory among all the nations of the world. End quote. Against such messianic pretense, um, Camp says, displayed by both the American left and the American right, our hearts must be schooled and steeled. We must insist that such logic betrays the gospel. For in employing such logic, America has laid upon itself the mantle of redemption, which is rightfully only laid upon, taken up by the Holy Trinity. Now, he also adds a few other quotes, and I skipped it. Let me just reread it here, or not reread it, but read it for you here. He says, alongside the Republican Lincoln, the Democrat Wilson, and the Republican Trump, we can add all manner of others such as the Democrat Beto O'Rourke in his recent announcement of his candidacy for president. Quote, The only way for us to live up to the promise of America is to give it our all and to give it for all of us. We are truly now more than ever the last great hope of earth. Or as the secretary, the Democrat Secretary of State Madeleine Albright said, quote, If we have to use force, it is because we are America. We are the indispensable nation. We stand tall. We see further into the future. Now, why am I bringing all of this up? Here's why I'm bringing it up. It is not a correct biblical interpretation to take Jesus's words, you are the light of the world, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden, and apply it to America. When people do that, as they have done it, so, so I'm not making this up, right? These are th- 
presidential speeches that are happening and people believe this vocabulary. When this happens, when you merge the kingdom of heaven with America as a nation, you give off the impression that to be light for the world now is done through political means. So what I'm saying is there are many Christians today who believe the way that they shine light in the world, the way they let others know their good deeds is to make sure they put the right you know, political candidate sign in their front yard to let everybody know that they oppose things like abortion and that they are in favor of things like you know, gun rights or what have you. People putting a public sign, people making sure the way they vote is is done in a certain way and imagining that that is the light that Jesus is talking about. Well, here's what's fascinating about this. We don't have to pretend or imagine what Jesus means by the light of the world. He's already given us the Beatitudes and he's about to give us a hefty dose of what real righteousness looks like in the kingdom. So we don't have to imagine what what being light actually means for the simple fact that in John chapter eight, Jesus calls himself the light of the world. And he says, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now this might be an oversimplification, but one of the main reasons why America is not a Christian nation is for the simple fact that America as a nation does not exist to further the claims of Christ in the world. As a nation, America does not follow Christ. America does not lay down its life for its enemies. America picks up weapons and goes to war against its enemies for reasons that make perfect sense because that's what nations do. But that's not what Jesus did. We don't want to take the mistake of some who then think, well... Jesus was talking about a spiritual kingdom, this heavenly reality. But I mean, we've got to live on the earth, right? Like give to God what is God's and give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Like we've got to play this game by, by the worldly standards. And if, if you know, one nation is, is threatening another nation, of course, we've got to pick up arms and go to battle. I'm not going to get into a debate about international affairs. That's not the point of my podcast. And I am not an expert in this topic. But it's a very, very dangerous assertion to assume that what Jesus came to do was to set up some spiritual reality. But in the real world, things need to be done according to the way they're done in the world. That is absolutely not the case. Jesus's presence on earth was not a spiritual presence. It was a physical presence. He was physically here. That's the hope of the world is that the resurrection is going to unite body and soul forever in eternity, in the new heavens, in the new earth, we're not going to be disembodied spirits. We are going to be united body and spirit forever, just as Jesus is um, and was and still is. So this idea that we have these separate kingdoms is not reality. Uh, Peter attempted to do this in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus was being arrested. He wasn't being spiritually arrested. He was being physically arrested by the Romans. And Peter reached for the one manner of defense that he understood. And that was the physical world. That is grab a sword and threaten Rome with the same means of, of, you know, imposition that Rome was currently using. And that was guards armed with swords. And so Peter reaches for a sword. And what does Jesus do? He rebukes him because Jesus has not come to set up a kingdom 
where God's blessing now lands on one secular group over against another group. That's what nation states are. That's what nation states do. And you can live in a nation state and you can love the things that your nation state supports, but you cannot make the mistake of imagining that your nation state is synonymous with the ways of the kingdom. And this is why I said it's very, very hard for people to separate these things, but we've almost created a version of the Christian faith that meshes so well with American politics that we sometimes don't even see the idolatry that's running rampant. But I would like to submit that Jesus is not asking us to be light by voting the right policies in place that are going to impose on the rest of the world a standard of righteousness that will force them to obey it or they will be disciplined. That is not the kind of righteousness that Jesus is talking about in the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, it's the kind of righteousness that the Pharisees embodied. They were a group of people, elevated their own morality over and above everybody else. And when I say everybody else, I mean the poor in spirit, the mourners, the pure in heart, the meek. They saw those people as insignificant in Jesus's world. And I'm sorry, in God's kingdom. Jesus comes and says, those are the only people that are significant in God's kingdom. And the fact that you all in the name of God are pushing out these kinds of people means that you aren't part of God's kingdom at all. You have no idea what his kingdom is actually all about. And so we need to be constantly reminded about these things because Jesus is saying, look, when the world looks at you and the world sees you, turn the other cheek, refuse to retaliate, get convicted in your heart about an angry situation you had with a brother and go reconcile that relationship with that brother before things go any further south. When people in the world see your sensitivity to looking at a woman with lust in your heart and you convicted, recognizing that that is adultery already, and you working deeply to remedy the problems that are going on in the human heart, which cause that kind of sexual brokenness in the world. When the world sees that kind of thing and they see that kind of devotion and that kind of dedication and the fact that people who follow Jesus claim first to have logs in their own eyes, things that are blinding them from seeing the world, and they compare it to the fact that everybody around them just has specks in their eyes, they look at you and they say, what on earth prompts you to take your own sinfulness and your desire for real righteousness so much more seriously in yourself than anybody else in the world? And when they see that, they, Jesus says, they will give glory to your father who is in heaven. Now, we'll get to a section later on in Matthew chapter 6 where Jesus explicitly tells people not to show others their good works, but rather to do those things in secret. And we'll talk about why wisdom is so important in following Jesus in his kingdom because this almost sounds like two contradictory things. Do I do my works in front of other people so that they see my works and give glory to God? Or do I hide my good works from other people so that they don't see me elevating myself in their presence? That's a great question. We'll talk about that when we get to Matthew chapter 6. I have a few ideas. I'm sure many of you do too, and I'd love to hear about them. But right now, Jesus is simply saying, you are the salt of the earth. You are the agent in the earth who because of your concern for real righteousness, because of your concern with the kinds of people who are blessed in my kingdom, because of your very presence in the world, 
focusing your energies and concerns and thoughts on things that ultimately matter, that are truly transformational, that are truly life-giving, you will be an agent of slowing the decay of the world around you. That's what I've called you to be. But if you're not doing that, what good are you? You're not, salt isn't good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. If you are not being a preserving agent, you're serving no purpose. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but they put it on a stand so that it gives light to all in the house. What does that mean? That means that you want to be able to shine light so that others see that light, see that way of life, see that pursuit of real righteousness, and are able themselves to then see how to walk through this life too. If you're in a room or in a house and it's dark in there, and one of you has a little light, You're going to hold that up in the middle of the room so that other people can see too. It's not so that they can see you. You're not doing it so that people look at you. You're doing it so that they can see. The light that you're emanating is enabling them to be able to put one foot in front of the other to navigate their own self around the house. That's what Christians are here to do. We're here to direct the world into a particular path. That might mean... You vote for certain policies that you feel are important. Sure, absolutely. You feel like it's destructive in our society when, when unjust laws are passed, so I'm going to vote that we, that we have other laws passed. That's great. But that's not where it stops. It's rather that we begin to embody when Jesus himself says, I am the light of the world. We have to see the fact that his light shined into darkness in places where other people thought it was already light. And this is what, as Jesus is often called, you know, one of the greatest prophets, right? He was more than that, but he certainly was a prophet. And any prophet or that person worth their salt is going to do that. They are going to shine light onto places that other people thought were already lit up. And they're going to say that these places where you think light is present, it's actually darkness. Let me shine real light on it. And we're going to get one or two responses. You're either going to get people who rejoice and are like, oh my gosh, I am so thankful for that insight. I am so thankful for that gift. That is a precious gem for me. I'm going to use that now. I am going to look at the world totally differently. Thank you so much. That that insight is powerful. Wow, you serve an amazing God who gives you that kind of insight, that kind of wisdom to be able to apply to life situations in a way that really transforms and really helps people. Or you're going to get those who like to think that the life they're already living is filled with light and do not like it when somebody says what you think is light is actually darkness. Let me show you what real light is. Because when real light is shined into a dark place, it requires a change. And if you're a position where you're ready to change, Jesus is light and the light of other Christians and the light of the church is a blessing. If you're in a position where you've grown quite comfortable with your standard of living and the way you like where nobody ever challenges you and nothing that you ever think is ever shown to be wrong, you may or may not like the light shining. And so granted, Jesus knows that some will give glory to your Father in heaven. I'm reading through Jesus's, some of Jesus' life during Holy Week right now. 
And many people marveled at what Jesus did and what Jesus said and how he responded to questions with such wisdom and insight and the Pharisees seeking to trap him in his words and the Pharisees themselves end up getting trapped in their own words and the crowds marvel at Jesus and they give glory to God. And we love that passage because it's so rich and it reminds us of what Jesus is teaching his disciples and that is that when they you know, let their light shine before others, those people will see their good works and give glory to their father in heaven. Go read Jesus's life. This happens all the time. And yet, very often, the very next verse will say something like, and the Pharisees and the scribes got together and tried to come up with a plan about how to kill him. Yeah, that's kind of how it goes. So recognizing that those who will see your good works will give glory to your father in heaven, that is sometimes the case depending upon the heart position of those people who see your good works. But understand, make no mistake, that is not a guarantee that everybody who sees what you do is going to love it. Because as Jesus will point out in his own life, sometimes the way to be a real peacemaker, the way to truly bring shalom to the world is by exposing the injustice that everybody assumes is just a normal part of reality. That is liberating to someone who has been oppressed by that injustice, but that is an unwelcome intrusion into the lives of people who directly benefit from that kind of injustice and have falsely labeled it justice. And this is Jesus's life. He's constantly doing this. And for us, it's our invitation to recognize that following him is worth everything and it will cost us everything. So that's all I have for you this week on the podcast. Um, I love doing this. This is so much fun. I'm glad that you are all tuning in. Thank you so much. If any of you have left me a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast app you choose to listen to these episodes, if you would be so kind as to do that. I, I got another rating this week. And I'm thankful for that. Whoever you are, thank you. I appreciate that. Um, sometimes people will leave a review as well. And if you're able to do that, I'd love to hear from you. And I'm sure it would help others find the podcast too in the searches as, as we get more ratings and reviews on the podcast. So I am excited for what's coming in the sermon. Um, next week's going to be great too. Actually, the rest of the Sermon on the Mount is great. So just uh, stay tuned and um, we'll plow through it together. I may have another by the book in a couple months. I'm working on some ideas and, and hopefully I'll keep you up to date on that as well. But I appreciate you all and I hope you have a fantastic week. Talk to you next time.